When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my name is Dan and I am the host of this podcast called Desert Island Dicks, which is the one that you're listening to now. And this episode features Bobby Friction, who is not just a DJ and presenter, he's also a very funny man, as you'll discover as you listen to this podcast. I'm not going to spoil anything, but there is a section on the Sheriff of Nottingham in this podcast that I really didn't see coming, and I think you'll particularly enjoy. Don't forget there's loads of other episodes in our back catalogue with people that are also not comedians, but who are very funny and entertaining, like writer and journalist Stuart Heritage, or drag queen Davina DeCampo. And if you like drag queens, there's also Jinx Monsoon and Major Scales, or Glamru and Crystal. You get the picture. Whatever you're into, there's a Desert Island dick for you. So why not subscribe, and then you'll never miss an episode from this day forth. And if you like it, please leave us a review, because it makes us feel nice, and uh, we've got fragile egos. Uh, that's my pitch done, so I'll leave you with Bobby Friction on Desert Island Dicks. Hi, I'm Dan Benedictus and welcome to Desert Island Dicks, the show that sees you marooned on a desert island after a plane crash with the worst people and worst things imaginable. Who they are and why they're a dick is up to our guest and here to share their Desert Island Dicks with us today is DJ and radio and TV presenter Bobby Friction. How are you doing? Hello Dan, I'm so happy to be discussing uh, dicks with you of all people. Let's <laughs> well, get amongst the dicks bro, let's get amongst them dicks right now. <laughs> we'll get stuck into some dicks. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad you're up for it today. So, Bobby, how did you find the process of choosing your uh, your picks for the island today? Um, quite hard, actually, because there's a lot of dicks out there. There's a lot of dicks that need exposing, <laughs> no pun intended. There's a lot of dicks that need to be discussed in, in various details. And what I found, and maybe this is my own hateful persona, I found I was actually kind of casting dictum over vast swathes of the population of planet Earth. So I had to, it was very hard to pinpoint down the dicks, if you, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. At first I was like, ah, dicks, everyone who drives uh, really badly in Britain and everyone who's voted Tory. So I had to actually really focus on the dicks minutely. <laughs> okay, well, I'm, I'm eager to see who, who got to the shortlist. So uh, let's dive straight in. Who's going to be your first choice? All right, first choice, most definitely all football fans. And, you know, it's, 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 it's very terrorising and very triggering for me living in Britain because I don't like football fans. Most of my friends, most of my close friends are football fans. They're the most boring people on earth. The most interesting person can be reduced within half a millisecond into being an absolute dick and a twat uh, just by saying, so what team do you sport though, mate? So, uh, yeah, all football fans, and especially the ones who've got lots of, facts and figures and statistics at hand they're the worst yeah I mean I'm not a football fan either and I just find it um there's sort of no other I mean most conversations to pass the time of day 
you can sort of get away with not knowing that much about it, but it really closes you off. If someone suddenly starts talking about football, you're like, well, that's it. I've got nothing now. That's that's us done, basically. Yeah, I, I hate the, the, the in-out, the opt-in or out nature of it. And I've discussed this often with my friends. Like a WhatsApp group is the worst place to not be into football. When you've got a WhatsApp group full of your male friends, especially, as I do, I've got two different WhatsApp groups, all my mates from uni, all the mates I grew up with, it just takes a rumbling of a, you're going to watch the game tonight, and suddenly I'm cast out of the group. Yeah, And it's yeah. really, really terrifying, <laughs> because I do know stuff. Of course I know Chelsea are like this, and Liverpool won something recently, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But I hate, as you say, the whole in-out nature of it. It's literally like, well, you don't like football, so shut up, mate. You don't know yeah. about Brian Clough. Cluffy's golden era, mate. Don't don't talk to me about Cluffy. And and then the way they hate, uh, yeah, it's just it's it's really disturbing. And I hate the fact that uh, uh, I'm 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 basically being oppressed by these football fans, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I find that um, I mean I, I went to a wedding once, and it was one of those things where you know you end up talking to someone you've never met, and literally the second thing after how are you, the second thing he said was what team do you support? And I was like, I, f I don't really support a team, you know, and, and he had nothing. I mean, I think that if I said something like, oh, what kind of music are you into? And then they said, oh, I don't really like music. I'd go, okay, I've got other things we can talk about. But this guy was like, I don't know what to do now. You've given me nothing. And I was just like, how do you get through your life like that? Look, number one, Dan, fuck that guy, all right? If he's listening <laughs> right now, fuck you, all right? You're bringing this country down. Number two... <laughs> Uh, you're totally right. You know, as you say, like, if I met someone, I love music so much, I think it's the closest thing to spirituality on earth. If someone said to me, I don't like music, I'd be able to at least discuss the fact they don't like music. I wouldn't be incredulous. Uh, we'd just be talking. But when you meet these people and they're like, what team do you support, mate? And you're like, I don't support a team. They look at you like you've got the bubonic plague. They look at you that, like you've murdered children. And I'm just like... I haven't got a team. I mean, if you want me to go into it, I can give you an hour-long rant on why I haven't got a team. I decide not to have a team. I don't want to join this 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 football fascism. Literally, this this fascist intent. Not not obviously real fascism, but this this <laughs> kind of attitude that says you will have a team. Who is your team? Who did yeah. your father support? Who do you support now? And and as you say, like this inability to actually talk about anything else for a lot of football fans. I think the one thing that really disturbs me is is there's a lot of really smart people out there who've got really interesting jobs who read a lot of books who basically are loving life but they themselves have decided to fill eight percent of their available gray matter with football facts and i think that's what really it's, it's this isn't a class thing because i get it especially you know like I'm, I'm of a certain age i grew up when if you were white and working class you had a team and you had to deal with it that whole middle-class football phenomena really kind of started in the 90s. And that's what I don't get now. These, these people who've studied for years, who themselves can't talk about anything other than football. It's actually really disturbing. 
And I'm not saying it needs to be stopped. But we really need, we really need to look like. Oh my God! Lockdown, no football. Talk about it's been glorious, my friend. High <laughs> yeah. five on that one. Yeah, I I definitely feel like a a bit of relief when the season ends, and I just think I don't have to listen to people talking about this stuff anymore. Yeah, it's a very bizarre thing, and also I think the culture around talking about football is so much more than any other sport. Like you know, football phone-in programs. Like, you don't really get those about other sports. You know, when someone turns up and it's like, oh, we've got Bill from Dagenham here. He's going to tell us about his thoughts on Arsenal's back four or whatever. And you're like, I don't, in anything that I'm interested in, I want to hear the opinions of someone who knows about it. I don't care what some guy off the street thinks about, you know, their defensive problems or something. But that seems really peculiar to football. Whereas other sports, you kind of go, that was the game. Let's listen to some reasonable experts discuss it based on their knowledge and history within the sport. With football, you're like, anyone off the street want to shout on the, over the radio? You know, it's bewildering. Dude, like, you never get someone off the street going, look, I really want to discuss Federer's calves at the moment. You know, like, <laughs> his leg strength at the moment. You're totally right. It's only football that gets everyone going for it. As I said, you know what? I'm going to use this word again. It's football fascism. You will talk about the calves. You will talk about their diets. You will talk about management style. You will talk about the fact the stadium's really old and maybe that's affecting it. You will talk about, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just ridiculous. And, and, and I think on top of that, it, it, it hurts me. Like, look, I'm, I'm not an expert on history, but I totally get that whole thing. When I was young and I learned about the Romans and I learned about, you know, gladiators, I got it. It was literally like, well, they did this so the poor people didn't revolt. It was entertainment for the masses. Mm. When I look at football, bruv, I feel there's some kind of, I don't need, I hate conspiracy theorists, but I'm going to start one today. <laughs> I feel like up there in some capitalist Wizard of Oz setup, there's a little guy behind the curtain going, I will stop revolt against capitalism. I will feed them football. I will take men of the age and make them discuss. Um, you know, as you mentioned, defensive postures and why Arsenal aren't doing good in the second half of the season. I almost feel like, forget your 5G causing coronavirus, forget your flat earthers, there is something really strange going on. Them, the elite, <laughs> be brought off revolting from the working classes by feeding them football, this, this, this drug. Well, I mean, this is ridiculous. This is what it is. Football is basically kosh a mental kosh to stop us from having a revolution <laughs> it's true you get all these people talking about fluoride in the water system but i mean yeah you don't have to go to the effort when you've got football do you <laughs> <laughs> oh god I it more than i've ever hated it right now Thanks, <laughs> no it's very good i mean i remember when like you know i used to go to matches with my brother and i quite enjoyed that sort of aspect of it like getting in the car with him and his friends and going to a match and then when he left home because he's a bit older than me i just realized that without someone to sort of walk me through it and take me to a game, I was like, actually, I don't care at all. And it was such a liberating feeling to admit it to myself. It's like, you know, when you're grown up and you're like, I don't like lager that much and I don't mind saying it. It's okay. No one's, you know, I don't mind if someone takes the piss. It's okay. And another thing I've, I've realised, like you, you're not a massive football fan. I'm not a massive football fan. I thought, obviously, growing up, I was quite metrosexual. I was in touch with my feminine side. Obviously, a lot of my friends would literally go, you don't like football, you must be gay, mate. You're gay, innit? You like the dick, yeah? All right, forget <laughs> Desert Island discs, uh, dicks, even. Um, what's really weird now is when I do meet people who don't like football, 
you can't pinpoint them. I've got, I've got, I've got a mate in, 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 who comes from the East End of London, who knows all these like proper Cockney bad boy gangsters. He himself goes to the gym all the time. He's from a proper British Asian, like working class background. He's, he's into music. He's also been a, a bodyguard in the past and, and been a doorman. Mm -hmm. He hates football too. And that's the other thing. You can't clock, you can't spot a non-football fan in the crowd. It's almost like a secret language between us now. Yeah. I ain't got a team, bruv. Yeah, nor have I. <laughs> high five, high five. <laughs> <laughs> I think you make a very good case for football fans going on the island with you. And, and also, that's the other thing, because you'd be on the island with them and they'd be like, what team do you support? And that would be it for the rest of your life on the island. You're just going to hear sort of gentle murmuring about uh, about football. So I think it's a very, very wise choice. I totally and forgot about the island, but you're totally right. We don't want them on the island. It's, it's cr crashing on an island, dealing with the psychological trauma of that and then having people literally, A, talk about football. That's in the past because they crashed on an island so they can't keep up to date with that stuff. And then B... That whole, as I say, it's kind of fascism. It's like, you were really cool until I found out you didn't support a team. So I don't need those people. We don't, we don't need people who have willingly accepted the government elitist kosh of football on this island. We want mavericks. We want people <laughs> who think outside the box. If you like football, doesn't matter how amazing you are, how much money you earn, what amazing job you do, you're basically a follower. You're a you're, what do, what do these people call it? Sheeple, that's it. You're one of the sheeple. <laughs> You've argued that brilliantly, so uh, no further questions on that, Bobby. Um, who would be your second choice for the island then? All right, any bastard who hates space travel. And they, these ones, <laughs> I'm, I'm coming for these guys right now. Because they, they, I'm not saying they deserve to be culled en masse, but we really need to think. <laughs> about why these people walk amongst us okay okay so anyone who hates space travel um okay Here, let me just should i deconstruct this for you all right yeah give us a lowdown it's my obsession it's my version of football mm -hmm. but i don't go around going don't you know about space travel mate so anyway i love looking into space travel and the reason i really like looking into it is because i'm a big fan of the fermi paradox all right now the fermi paradox is basically it's named after an italian physicist who basically went to, you know, all these physicists who were looking for uh, ET and, and, mm -hmm. and signals in space. He literally went, if you actually look at the physics of the universe, how long it's been around, how many stars there are in the sky, how many galaxies there are in the sky, how many stars that have planets around them uh, in the sky, there would have at least been a billion alien civilizations before, before um, even mammals took over the earth and before humans uh, happened and homo sapiens happened. So his argument is, is basically the maths doesn't look good when it comes to, to alien life. Otherwise we'd have been run over it thousands or millions of years ago, all right? <laughs> before we go dump, jump too much into physics, the point is, is whether there's millions of aliens out there or there's no aliens out there, either way, basically, we're really special, all right? And I don't mean that we're really special as humans. What I'm saying is, is if there are no aliens out there and they haven't visited, then we're the only life in the universe. And if we're the only life in the universe, why the hell are we staying? It's like, it's like, it's like emerging out of South Africa as homo sapiens and going, we're just gonna stay here. And if an asteroid comes along and kills us all, you know, it's fine. 
the whole point of, of, of surviving is that humans spread across the globe. They got used to living in the Arctic and living in the savannas of Africa and living in Asia and, you know, South America. So if there's no aliens out there, it is our responsibility as the only organisms in the entire known universe to leave this planet. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's quite a positive take on it because I think sometimes there's the, if I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute, it's this sort of argument of like, well, let's sort out this earth first before we go and sort of colonise another one. But I think you're putting it in quite a positive spin. Like, you know, let's kind of, it's it's almost like it saves us by doing that, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it, this isn't about uh, being a dreamer and not thinking about this earth because, you know, the one argument I always come up against, and this is the guy who I don't want on this desert island with me, people always go, oh my God, there's people starving on earth and you, you spent this much money is getting spent going into space. The whole thing is, is there were people starving when we were cavemen. There were people starving when we were in the Iron Age and the Bronze Age. The reason humanity has survived is because not only did we try and feed ourselves, we also went out there, we spread ourselves. We made sure that if there was a, a catastrophe, uh, you know, uh, someone attacked our village or our village burnt down or, 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 or plague got spread, that there were other humans in other parts of the world. That's why as a species, we didn't die out. So all of this, well, we've got to sort out this planet first and we can't even feed everyone on this planet. Actually, we can. We need to basically bring down all the governments in the world right now. There's enough food to go around. It's, it's the system that means people are starving. And secondly, one asteroid uh, could destroy us like they just took out the dinosaurs and mm. uh, without us being on other planets uh that's it that's the end of the human race forever and possibly life in the universe forever so we have to become a multi-planetary species and that's why when someone comes along and goes oh all these rockets why the firing rockets what a waste of money i just think dude you're not getting it this is actually about survival this is the most pro-human thing anyone can do yeah, yeah, I like it. I, th I think the other thing is that I suppose it's like when people see a new scientific paper on something that isn't particularly relevant to sort of human life and it's just more sort of an interesting thing and people go, well, you could be could be curing cancer instead of doing that. And it's like, well, if this scientist didn't do this research, it doesn't mean that he's going to suddenly go off and start curing cancer. It doesn't quite work like that. Like if NASA stopped they're probably not going to suddenly start feeding everyone. Like, it's not going to sort of pay for loads of massive soup kitchens. It's like the money will just get absorbed somewhere else, but probably nowhere that useful. So it's kind of, you know, I wish that there could be loads of funds allocated to the poor and homeless and hungry, but I think it's not going to come from NASA or, or space exploration. Exactly. And look, at, at, on a bottom, really building blocks child level, all right? If you stop humans from leaving this earth, it's like stopping those initial humans from leaving South Africa. So basically what you're saying is, is we don't want to evolve. And, and, and that's what I really, I think, what really gets under my skin when I meet the guy who goes, oh, you know, like, it's such a waste of money. I just think, dude, like, like it's, this is what a simplistic argument. You're literally saying, I, we, I don't want us to evolve. I don't need us to grow. I don't want us to think big. I don't want us to be optimistic and positive. And that's what really gets to me about these people. Yeah, I mean, maybe with that sort of attitude, they'd be quite happy being on a desert island then, you know, because they're sort of, I just get to stay in this place and not, not expand my horizons. So maybe they'd become quite an easy person to live with until you started talking about space travel. Okay, all right, fine. I'll, I'll touch skin, high five, fist bump on that. But 
if I get on that desert island uh, with, with the, this dick, all right, at some point <laughs> I want to go off. And I can tell you right now, someone who's easy to live with right that, like that is not going to be as much help as someone who's actually going, we will leave this island one day. We will. We dare to dream. We dare to dream that we will leave this island one day. And I want to be with that person, even if they're even more annoying than the dick. I'd rather at least work towards possibly leaving the island at some point in the future. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, human humanity needs these people, like the people that sort of... I guess, you know, the people who dare to poke the hornet's nest and jump off something high for the first time, it's that same mentality of like, what if we did this? You know, what if we tied a rocket to ourselves? And it's like, I suppose that is the sort of thing that's pushing humanity forward. So, um, yeah, I think that's a good point. I'd never really thought of it in that way before. So uh, you've brought me around to, to your way of thinking now. I think it's a, a good idea. And I suppose that I suppose that also if they're kind of denying one aspect of human advancement then you could also say that they're probably going to be quite small-minded in other ways as well so no well look look if you don't if you if you don't believe in space travel you're obviously prime for getting ripped off by fake news if you really want to get tabloid on it you know like we're talking low-hanging fruit here bruv (laughs) (laughs) okay and who who would be your third choice to go on the island with you all right the sheriff of nottingham all right. Sheriff of Nottingham, nice. And a particular Sheriff of Nottingham, not the one from Robin Hood. The Sheriff of Nottingham, who was the Sheriff of Nottingham when I went to Nottingham Trent University. Okay. This bastard came for me, and I've never forgotten. <laughs> really? T- talk us through it. This is extraordinary. All right, so the Sheriff of Nottingham. I ended up going to uni, uh, and I, I mashed up my first year of uni. You know, I didn't really go to any lessons and all that stuff. So anyway, to cut a long story short, the Sheriff of Nottingham was also a lecturer, lecturer on my course at uni. <laughs> so I used to get, and he was the main lecturer, the main guy, and I did a communication studies degree. And so he was also the sheriff. And what happened was, uh, I didn't really go to that many lessons. He obviously thought I was a bit of a, a dick, weirdly <laughs> enough, seeing as we're talking about dicks. He thought I was a massive pulsating dick. I mean, I did wear ridiculous <laughs> clothes, I'd wear makeup, <clears throat> into class I'd ask stupid questions about race which wasn't being discussed then and then on top of that I didn't do any of my homework mm-hmm. then the first Gulf War happened all right so war in Iraq and um we loved it me and my me and my friends my close group of friends for us it was our 1968 moment do you know what I mean and this was the early 90s mm. for us it was like yeah it's like Vietnam, bruv, you know, come on, let's do this. We're going to, we're going to protest against this war. So the night the war started, and I think it, uh, you know, like America invaded Iraq. This is when Saddam Hussein was in power. Mm. Um, I look back now and I'll, I'll admit, it's toe curlingly embarrassing, all right? <laughs> what we did was we, we blasted Give Peace a Chance from John Lennon, John and Yoko, yeah out of our windows uh, from one o'clock in the morning till six o'clock in the morning on, 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 on university land where there were lots of halls <laughs> of residence. Uh, and we played it again and again at full volume. And then possibly someone, don't ask me how, may have introduced LSD into the situation. <laughs> <laughs> and all I remember after that is like kind of coming to my senses at about, 8.45 in the morning, seeing lots and lots of students going to their nine o'clock lecture, lectures and looking at us and scowling at us and me realising I was in my pyjamas and underpants, as were my friends, 
and that there was a big, big banner made out of hastily stitched together uh, bedsheets <laughs> saying, give peace a chance, hanging from our halls of residence. Amazing. So we retired <laughs> into, into my bedroom, and I don't know how this happened, but whilst we were, I'll just admit it, tripping off our tits, <laughs> the door opened and the sheriff of Nottingham walked <laughs> with this really red, angry face and just <laughs> launched into a tirade about destruction of property. We didn't deserve to be on our you know, degree courses. He was going to be speaking to the bursar to see if we could pay for the damage. He was thinking of calling the police. And in the middle of this tirade, he just looked over at me and went, you're one of mine, aren't you? You! You're one of mine! As in, <laughs> I was one of his students. Yeah. And I kind of went, Nyeh! And um, that was it. After that, I never went to his class again. Every time he saw me uh, on, he would, uh, uh, on, um, on university property, he would scowl. His face would go red and he'd be grunting and, and, and moaning with hate against me. And I remember at that time thinking, look, all I did was possibly drop acid during the first Gulf War and destroy university property. I didn't do that much. Oh, and I didn't go to any of your lessons. And um, <laughs> the only way to psychologically survive this entire episode was to paint myself as some kind of latter-day Robin Hood to everybody. So <laughs> fuck the Sheriff of Nottingham. Fuck him and his merry men and all his bastards with, with, and all the people he, he had ranged up against me. Fuck off back to Sherwood Forest. Fuck <laughs> off you did. You know, get, you're not crashing in this plane with me. That is extraordinary. God, I, I mean, I don't think I can better the sentence than standing there was the Sheriff of Nottingham. I mean, that was superb. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. I mean, I didn't before. So before when you first said the sheriff Nottingham, I assume we were going to sort of talk about, you know, the one, you know, from Robin Hood. And that was the sort of thing like, oh, yeah, he actually existed. And he did all this bad stuff back in those days and treated the poor very badly. But I didn't know there was still a sheriff of Nottingham that you could get in scrapes with and end up tangled, you know, becoming your, your become your sort of modern day adversary. Well, he, he was also a Labour councillor. And I think the sheriff of Nottingham is purely ceremonial. But, but he came for me, bruv. He came, <laughs> me. He came for me. And uh, admittedly, maybe looking at his face after LSD had been administered did make him look not just evil, but like, like, like a massive, monstrous bastard out to kill me. And that <laughs> may have shaped my feelings towards him, but he's not getting on that plane and we're not crashing together. Wow. Yeah, because, I mean, sharing an island with someone who has that much of a dislike of you, I mean, that's just going to simmer away forever. You're never, you're never talking that one through. No, exactly. And he'll, the, there's an inherent power relationship there as well. Yeah. Like, like, he'll always see me as the guy who messed up his degree course, who messed up his halls of residence, because he also kind of was the guy who looked after the halls of residence at Nottingham Trent University. Like, yeah, just just no. And I'm sure there are a lot of daddy issues involved in there as well uh, from my from my end. So I don't need that <laughs> shit. Wow, that is superb. I mean, isn't it so? I mean, because we've all had sort of like run-ins with people at, at uni or school or at work or whatever. But just everything would be made so much better as a story if if those people had titles like Sheriff of Nottingham. <laughs> <laughs> It just makes everything so much better, doesn't it, in retrospect? It does, and it also validates, no matter how shitty your responses were, it validates those responses. Yeah. 
Yeah, oh, Bobby, that is superb. Right, now, mercifully, amongst the wreckage of the plane, there was some food and drink left over. Unfortunately for you, it's your least favourite food and drink in the world. What are they and why are they so bad? Okay, so the first thing I'm going to say is lentils, all right? Okay. And the reason I say lentils, because I would never call them lentils at home. This, this is stuff I've grown up with. It's dal, all right? Mm. And I come, you know, I have a British Asian heritage. I've grown up. And I'm not going to do that whole thing of, oh, you've got to taste my mum's cooking. It's sick, bruv. Uh, and you know what? What do you white people do to our food? What have you done? You've blanded it. But basically, that is possibly a brick in the wall uh, in, my, in my rant against lentils. I mean, I didn't even know what lentils were until I got to uni and a lot of my, my white friends were like, oh, we're cooking lentils tonight, Bobby. Oh, I think you'll absolutely love these lentils. You eat a lot of lentils. How does your mum cook lentils? I'm like, what the fuck is a lentil, bruv? <laughs> right? <laughs> and then I had aforementioned lentils from my white friends at uni and I suddenly realised Forget Indian takeaways and, and, and restaurants. Forget the home cooking my mum does, which is completely different. There's a third grouping. And what I would call it is it's white middle-class Indian food. It's the stuff <laughs> they do at home and they've actually been doing since, since the days of the Raj. It's literally, even though I do quite like coronation chicken sandwiches, it's what's come out of that whole coronation chicken sandwich mashup situation. <laughs> So I don't mind coronation chicken, but but you get what I'm saying. It's that yeah. that slight application of something slightly Asian, and they've gone. This is amazing. So all those lentils I had at uni were slop. There was no spices. There was. It was just basically the lentils I had at home, the dal I had at home, mixed with water and maybe a tiny bit of oxo. You know, it's just just yeah. it just horrific, horrific bastardization. Of food. So this isn't some massive cultural empowerment trip. This isn't <laughs> about brown lives mattering or brown food mattering. It's literally, it's all fine. I love the interplay between cultures. I love what happens to food. Pizzas are amazing. Look at what America's done to so many of the food that's traveled there. Look at what Britain's done to so many of the, so much of the food, even chicken tikka masala, you know, all of that kind mm. of stuff. But when white people get their hand on lentils, that's when their mad whiteness comes out and basically <laughs> I will not have that slop that my white brothers and sisters, the middle class uh, um, <laughs> um, um, end of that spectrum due to lentils. I can't imagine anything worse than having that food on that desert island. <laughs> yeah, you met, your reasoning is very sound. I think, yeah, it's one of those things like certain ingredients need to be touched by the right hands, you know, and I think I'd, I'd, I'd like, I'd add the humble chickpea in, in there as well, you know, like a chickpea curry is, I can really get on board with, but chickpeas any other way is, is a lot less appealing to me, you know, and I think it's that you just need that sort of deft touch and a bit of spice and a bit of sort of know-how, you know, because otherwise, you know, there's not a lot to work with. You know, look, I always find reversing, reverse psychology always really works. So dal, when it comes to South Asian cuisine, uh, lentils are a really important part, especially when you come from India, you know, less so maybe Bangladesh and Pakistan, where where, uh, where fish is really big in, Pakistan, in Bangladesh and meat's really big in Pakistan. But in India, everyone eats dal. So I'm going to reverse it now. I love a British breakfast, yeah? Mm. So... Can you imagine anyone fucking with the British breakfast to such an extent where you're literally like, that don't taste like sausages anymore. That doesn't even taste like 
eggs. You know, like you don't mess with the great British breakfast and woe betide anyone who does. And I will set the sheriff of Nottingham upon them. Right? <laughs> I, will, I will destroy that person. And the same comes goes with lentils. It's not up for evolution. You know what I mean? It's not up for some cross-cultural mixing. Let's create something new. Oh my God, this is amazing. Food's always been evolutionary. Yeah, it's amazing when cultures mix together. Yes, but you do not mess with the great British breakfast and you do not mess with lentils, bro. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good rallying war cry. And I mean, badly cooked lentils on a desert island as well, if that's all you've got to eat. I mean, that's that's hard work, isn't it? That's it, man. I mean, look, I I... I I've seen those really badly scripted Channel 4 and Channel 5 reality shows when they strand them on a desert island. Look at what happens to them whilst they're eating coconuts and plants. They literally want to kill each other. The moment they catch a fish, everyone's happy, all right? I don't want to be ending up having those lentils and going, what is it, coconut? No, no lentils. And, and the deeper vibe, which is basically, um, I'm not saying that there's, there's a, a place where privilege should stop or uh, evolution should stop but you do not touch certain things like you can't out sausage a sausage you can't <laughs> make the sausage something new a sausage is a sausage dal is dal don't give me lentils bitch <laughs> it's, a, it's a victorian attitude towards food that makes those lentils don't bring back the raj queen victoria's history fuck off bitch <laughs> No, I think I'm totally with you. I think it makes a lot of sense. And uh, I mean, I lived in Brighton for a number of years. So I mean, I was getting a lot of lentils thrown at me at that point. And um, yeah, not, not a patch on a good doll. So yeah, I agree. And uh, what would you wash those down with? God, all right, we need to talk about gin. All right. And, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very pained that gin, the bastard drink of horrible people for many years, is suddenly trendy. Why? How have they done this to gin? Plus, on top of that, gin doesn't suit me. Gin, right. <laughs> when I say it doesn't suit me, it's really bad, uh, psychologically speaking. So, so let me just pick this apart. Number one, mm. all right, I grew up in an era when gin was, I think it was called Mother's Little Helper, right? It's kind of, kind of 1950s housewife kind of drink, all right? Mm. And being of Sikh heritage, uh, or should I say Punjabi heritage, in a, a growing up in a house where everyone drinks, I did it all. I had the whiskey, had the vodkas, you know, tried everything. Gin was the only drink I tried and just went, ah, 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 ah. that's a disgusting drink. So that's then and that's fine because when I was growing up, it was kind of like, you don't need to like gin because gin's basically 1950s mm. housewife material, right? Secondly, I then tried gin on a couple of other situations where you're on an all-nighter and basically someone goes, I've only got gin left, bruv, and you go, all right, let's drink it. So gin's the only drink <laughs> that gives me a hangover so bad that I want to kill everyone within 20 feet and then kill myself for good measure. <laughs> and it's not just, oh, it's not a good hangover. I, I don't know what property in gin kind of interacts with what part of my DNA, but I wake up and I start crying. I'm, I mean, it's literally the difference between night and day. I don't have a hangover. I have a post-drinking breakdown. So really doesn't suit me it basically depresses me and you know when you hear these horror stories of people taking acid or smoking skunk and mm. basically essentially uh, being sectioned uh, and and, and uh, having mental massive mental health breakdowns the moment they've had that stuff that's what happens with me and gin i can't stop the crying i i'm literally in a space of mental anxiety until the hangover lifts 
So no gin, please. <laughs> it does sort of feel kind of like the British national spirit, isn't it? And like that the British national drink would sort of be associated with being really depressed and miserable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it kind look, of fits, doesn't it? It it does fit. And I think, you know, uh, we shouldn't get depressed about it, though, because, come on, we're also the, 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 the island that had Scotland that had whiskey and you know whiskey is one of the most amazing thing, mm. things that's ever happened to human society <laughs> uh, i can deal with gin being horrible in the devil's work with the fact that we also are the home of, of whiskey and also come on let's face it we're the great one one of the greatest beer drinking nations on earth mm. i can deal with gin basically fucking off forever I mean, I'm, I'm I'm not that fussy in general about food and drink. So, I mean, I can enjoy gin. But I, f- I remember the first time I drank it. And it's like, you know, when you're sort of, you know, you're maybe in your teenage years and things like, you know, you're sort of getting used to things like shaving and aftershave and like grown up stuff like that. And I remember sort of trying some gin at a party and just sniffing it. And I, was like, I thought someone was doing a practical joke on me because I swear it was just aftershave because it was like everyone's cheap aftershave that you wore as a teenager. And then, and I just could, and I was like, no, but seriously, you can't. And then I saw someone else drinking it. I was like, don't eat that. Don't drink that. It's, it's aftershave, man. Just because I just couldn't get my head around it for quite a long time until eventually you kind of get used to that sort of, that taste. But um, yeah, I mean, it is, it is a strong one. I mean, I'm I'm sort of more of a, a vodka drinker so every now and again when I switch back to gin and tonic you have to sort of recalibrate a little bit just to sort of get your tongue around it again. There's definitely um, a familial resonance between vodka and gin because the other drink that gets me depressed but not on these levels is vodka but saying that I'd, I'd need to drink like four vodka shots and then I'm very aware the next day that the hangover is particularly awful and I'm feeling a bit teary. Gin's okay. different. Gin, you know, if I, if, Listen mate if, if you find out I murdered someone I want you to find the police and go, you need, I need to tell you about Bobby's gin problem. <laughs> Gin's probably involved. And one last thing about gin. Um, I'm not into having a go at generations. I'm Generation X. I'm not going to have a go at the boomers or the millennials or, or, or Generation Y or the new Generation Z, whatever they're called. But I think it's very telling that the millennials brought gin back into vogue. And now I've been at someone's house, they're like, this is gin and it's been infused with lavender and it's amazing. And now I'm just like, which bastard generation has tried to resurrect gin? Because we need to cleanse the earth of this generation. As well as the gin! <laughs> I do think it's got a bit of a problem there, hasn't it? It's like, you know, I like it, but I don't like all the stuff that goes with it. It's sort of like, it's got this whiff of kind of tweed waistcoat about it and kind of, you know, sort of people that have, you know, grown up in the city, but suddenly wearing kind of like tweed trousers and socks pulled up and sort of riding a bicycle and this sort of faux English gentleman kind of look it's sort of, it's quite weird and drinking it out of those enormous glasses as well it's just like a thing these days yeah fuck enormous glasses mate <laughs> <laughs> sorry I'm not even thinking about the tweed English gentleman now those enormous glasses need to be smashed yeah, against the yeah. rocks Fair enough. Well, I'll distract you from the gin for a minute because fortunately you won't be without entertainment on the island. The plane's entertainment system continues to work, but just your luck, it only has two working settings. One's your least favourite film of all time and the other's your least favourite song. What are they and why? All right, so we'll go to the song in a minute because Mm -hmm. music is my life and um, um, I found it very hard to even name. I've just got this... Anyway, we'll go to music in a minute. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to movies... Basically, fuck the Goonies. The right? Goonies. So, this is quite a controversial one, I think, Bobby. 
Well, look, I don't know why. Maybe I was protesting against the first Iraq war. <laughs> I don't know what was happening. I mean, Goonies is like mid-80s, right? Yeah. So I would have been... Okay, so I would have been the right age. You know, my teenage years were the 80s. Um, I don't know why. I just didn't see it. And I was watching a lot of movies in the 80s. I've seen every other teen movie from the 80s. Watched it all in the cinema. I didn't see the Goonies. So it's just one of those things. It dropped off my radar. And it was literally only uh, about, I don't know, 15 years ago, when, mm. when or 10 years ago, when people started putting stuff on uh, uh, social media. Anyone remember the Goonies? Anyone remember this character using that Goonies font? That 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 weird that weird fat kid that 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 horrible monster with a kind of side face. You know, I don't, I don't even know the names of these people, right? <laughs> and suddenly I'm like, what is this movie? How come everyone knows every line from it? And how come it's turned into this really cool? Let's put it on a T-shirt and make a meme out of it. First of all, it, 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 you know, I, I completely missed it, missed it. So I have no idea what happened there. And secondly, I then tried to watch it. Fucking <laughs> hell, what a shit movie. I mean, the, <laughs> I, I hated the fact that people, like, I'm not saying Mark Kermo thinks this is his best movie, but people with rigorous intellects who enjoy cinema tell you how like, oh, well, this really exemplifies the great team movies of the 80s. Well, what a what a great kind of snapshot of the times we lived in and and this this pre pre tech. I, I'm just like no, it's a shit movie. Karate Kid, that's what the 80s was about. Karate <laughs> Kid, The Breakfast Club. When did the Goonies sneak in there? And also back to football. All right, <laughs> when you say the Goonies ain't great, these bastards react like right. you've literally attacked their mother. What uh, you know? Wh who are they? Th th these. These, they are the Hezbollah of cinema, these Goonies fans. <laughs> Literally want to come for you. What is wrong with these people? So fuck the Goonies, fuck the font, all right, especially. <laughs> fuck the font of the Goonies, fuck the crap T-shirts, most of all. Fuck that weird monster with the weird side. In fact, you know what I really don't like about that monster? Mm. I feel like they're taking the piss in a really weird 80s way out of deformity. And that's what I hate as well. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I think there's something sort of some films when you watch when you're young. I mean, like, there's loads of films that I haven't seen for some reason. Like I haven't seen Mary Poppins or E.T. Like, loads of big films you that everyone's seen. seen. Yeah, exactly. And then the people say, well, you, you should watch it now. And I'm like, well, no, because I reckon you probably liked it at the time because it is a good film. But and if you watched it again as an adult, you would remember everything you liked about it. But if I come to it as a 38-year-old man and watch it for the first time, I don't know if that's going gonna, gonna to quite work. Do you know what I mean? And I think it's something about those films. Sometimes you should enjoy the films of your childhood and then just never think of them again or never watch them again. Just enjoy the memories. You've made a really important point there. You've called it a, a film of your childhood. And mm. if people have seen it when they're children, fine, I get it. You love it. What I don't understand about the Goonies specifically amongst all those other 80s films is that it's always held up as really ironic and cool in retrospect. Mm. And that's what I don't understand. Like, you know, the Lost Boys from the 80s, right? I yeah. get that. It was cool at the time. If you look at it now, it's really like, oh my God, this isn't cool. This is Hollywood trying to approximate cool. But you get that and you can watch it and go, this is a particular genre. What I don't get about the Goonies is it's not just that childhood thing that you've mentioned people will turn around and go, no, it's a cult movie. And there's certain things that make a cult movie a cult movie. The Goonies isn't a cult movie. And once again, like, I would understand 
it's cultness, it's lost boysness, or even it's, it's breakfast clubness, if it was like that, but it's not. It's literally a Spielberg movie. It's not even that cool. And once again, it's the Al-Qaeda of, of, of 80s movies yeah. fans who want to behead you for saying you don't like it that I really, really have issues with. Mm. I wonder if it's sometimes people just kind of like a sort of film because it's almost like wearing a badge of what they sort of believe in. Like I remember watching, a, I remember seeing this guy at a festival and he had a t-shirt on that said, nobody puts baby in the corner on it. And that was it. And I just thought, you, you're you just trying to look like a sensitive man. So a girl's going to come up to you and go, oh, I love Dirty Dancing. And, you, and he's going to go, yeah, me too. And then they're going to have sex. Do you know what I mean? It's like, there's like a very sort of, um, uh, what sort of cynical sort of appropriation of the idea of that film. And I wonder if people are doing it about the Goonies. Like, hey, I like the Goonies. I like just jetting off with my friends and sort of fun-loving and going on adventures and just like, you know, I'm part of a crazy ragtag group of mates. You know what I mean? Maybe they're sort of part of their brains appropriating the, the concept of the Goonies or something. Yeah, probably, but uh, I, I, I don't get it. I don't think it's a great movie. I don't think it's a cult movie. I don't think... Uh, uh, I was there at the time and it missed me, all right? And and basically, um, the fact that I didn't hear about it throughout the 90s or even when I was 20 or 25 and only started hearing about it over the past 10 years says to me that it's been resurrected for the wrong reasons. It's not a true resurrection. It's not a true cult movie. I almost feel like someone somewhere in, on a computer, on a, on, a, on, a, on a wall, on a message board somewhere, really went for the Goonies and went, yes, it's the Goonies we need in our life right now. And basically everyone's just been too afraid to, to, to kick back uh, against it. And now actually it's seen as this massive cult movie and it doesn't deserve that status. And one last thing, that thing you said about that guy at the festival, mm. I've been that guy at that festival, <laughs> uh, but I didn't wear a t-shirt. What I do is just basically, and this is just natural to me, um, uh, maybe you may not see it now, but like I'm quite feminine uh, sometimes. And I've always found, not in, in some cynical way, that always helps, always used to help at least in my 20s with the ladies <laughs> at festivals. I'm okay. not going to mention about sleeping with them because that obviously didn't happen. <laughs> okay well i think as i said i think it's going to be a controversial choice but i mean that's kind of what this podcast is all about so i look forward to seeing what happens when you drop this uh this hand grenade uh on the goonies so uh i'm i'm, I'm into it and uh I, I remember enjoying it but as i said i'm probably not going to revisit it so that i can continue to enjoy it in my head but i think you make you make good points um and moving on to your song what would that be all right so um i don't believe in genocide i think it's awful <laughs> <laughs> really, you know, when we think about man's inhumanity to man, obviously uh, murdering someone is the worst thing you can do. And uh, there's just something about the Lighthouse family that <laughs> makes me feel murderous in intent. It brings some stuff that I think me as a physical manifestation of life on Earth, I, it brings up stuff that's been buried since even pre-Neanderthal times, I feel like getting a club. I feel like going, ugh, ugh, and beating my <laughs> chest, chasing down members of the Lighthouse family, especially the bloody singer, and clubbing them to death in the most vicious way possible <laughs> for the track lifted. Right. <laughs> so look, music is my life, uh, and I've always had this very evangelical approach to the radio shows I do for the BBC. 
I honestly believe that, you know, music is the thing. It's all those cliches. It brings cultures together mm-hmm. uh, and you can't quite describe it. It's different than other forms of art. It's been around longer than theatre and, and, and a lot of these other forms of art. Uh, and music uh, essentially can, you know, lift you out of the physical world within one second and transport you. It's, you know, it, it, it literally astrally projects you into other worlds. It, 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 it can bring down the three dimensions we live in right now and put you into a multi-dimensional universe. The music is powerful. And the one thing, when you're a radio presenter, you get a lot of, oh my God, I can't believe you're playing that. It's shit, play this instead. And you, what usually happens over time, and I see this with a lot of radio presenters, is you get to that whole, uh, if beauty's in the eye of the beholder, the music is in the ear of the beholder kind of vibe, mm. where you just basically don't ever have a go at anyone for hating on a track because you suddenly realize all music's literally completely objective. Mm. But the Lighthouse family exists <laughs> inside <laughs> that, 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 that actual physical space, all right? Because when I hear lifted, I want to get lifted from the shadows. I just like, it just reminds me of the worst kind of music. I feel like they sat there in the studio and literally came up with their own building block maths and said, what's the kind of track that will get us into the charts right now? What track will get us into the charts? What track will it appeal to the vast majority of people? They don't have to like it. They just have to kind of like it. And then also when I think about the people who really like the Lighthouse family, I think about all the middle managers, all the David Brents, all the people I used to work with before I started radio, when I did work in IT recruitment, when I did basically flirt with the ideas of working in sales and, and, and trainee kind of uh, estate agents. It just makes me think of absolute wankers. <laughs> Again, very, very well put. I, I agree with you completely. I think that the Lighthouse family, it's like, it's like for people who like music, but not that much, you know what I mean? They like they just want it on in the background and they're never going to sort of buy any music. They just want like a stream of something that's never going to kind of get the pulse racing or kind of make them feel anything, which is the antithesis of what music should be. You know, it's like it's like the art on the wall of a McDonald's. It's like, you know, <laughs> I suppose technically it is art because someone's made it and it's a picture, but actually you know, it's, it's worthless, basically. Oh, a beautiful, beautiful metaphor there. You're totally right. It is the musical, the audio, <clears throat> and oral equivalent of a piece of artwork in, in McDonald's. What's really mad about that particular track um, is I've been in spaces when people say, oh, I love, this is my tune, I really like it. And you know what it is? It's always the same people who live their life by designer gear as well. And when I think about designer clothes, I'm not talking about someone enjoying a pair of, say, night trainers or someone even going out going, look, I saw this amazing Gucci jacket. I don't buy that much designer gear, but look at that jacket. It's a one-off, isn't it? It looks amazing. I'm talking about people who literally only live in a designer world. For me, they're the new slaves, all right? Mm. You know, forget slaves during Roman times. This is being, being wanting, asking, begging to be marked. And that's exactly what those designer logos are. They are marks of ownership from these massive corporate capitalist companies who've managed to even take the art out of fashion and turned it into some mad ownership thing. And it's always those people who have literally are decked 
head to toe in designer gear who live designer lives who even have designer wallpaper not even expensive designer stuff they just need to be owned they need to have a branded a branded egg mixer they need to have a branded <laughs> knife you know they need a branded handbag they need a branded wallet those people literally go down on their knees quivering and start orgasming when lifted <laughs> or it comes on the radio and i think that's what i really hate about it as well it's like the, uh, all of us are trying to live better lives we're trying to love our fellow man but there is a gene inside of us which makes us want to kill the other tribe and kill the 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 you know the the other neanderthals who live on the other side of the forest and I've really got that gene under control. <laughs> that song, the people who like that song need to be cold now. <laughs> I think, I think, I mean, again, I think you're absolutely right. But I, what's really frustrating sometimes about music like that is that you know that it's bland enough that it'll always do really well and be around forever on radio playlists. Like, you know, once it's not even like music that people all sort of own on CD or anything, or like, well, CDs these days, but like people won't own that music. They'll just kind of, it will just exist on a radio playlist and it will probably do quite well with the sort of people that don't really care about music so it will always live there like you know you some have an easy listening station on and you're like oh god I, I thought this song had gone away forever but it's living here it's hiding away on this sort of smooth playlist that's where it is you bastards you kept it alive oh god it's smooth forget the station it's smooth even that isn't a massive indictment and uh, um for the purposes of research even though i knew the track and it came into my head straight away. I went and listened to it on my phone uh, last night. And I never realised, and I'm sorry to say this, because I'm sure he's probably been operatically trained and has got an amazing career writing hits for other people. But the guy who sung it has got such a bad voice. We've got to get lifted from the shadow. It's like, ah! <laughs> it's a man. It's a man literally trying to paint beige atoms across the known universe by <laughs> his mouth oh man and being stuck with that as well can you imagine just that i mean it's so bland it would sort of i mean it's a good one for um as like a torture technique isn't it you know the sort of thing that in hostage negotiations they blast at the walls until people just come out screaming to sort of weaken people before they submit oh god I, seriously uh, if i was working for psyops for the uh, american government or even the Chinese government, I would have put that as number one in my army. Like, Do not touch. Only only the three admirals have got the codes for this one. Because this yeah. is serious, bruv. Two people turning a key at the same time on different sides of the room. <laughs> like the nuclear code. Oh, we're going nuclear, mate. What? You're actually releasing the missile? Yes, we're releasing. We're releasing lifted. And and also think about it on a desert island. Like, can you imagine that 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 beige? That beige, mm. really limp call to arms. Come on, we gotta get lifted. Let's go. Oh, don't be down. Let's get lifted. You would literally smash up the audio system on the plane on the desert island, and then, yeah, it's, uh, it's going, it's going. And some of the singers and so the people who signed the A and R guys who signed it deserve having their throats slit. I'm sorry. 
Yeah, it's like being sort of, I don't know, being drowned in marshmallows or being stabbed by a teddy bear or something. It's so sort of, you know, it's something seemingly very tame, but like very pernicious and evil. Um, yeah, I think that's a very wise choice. And I think very few people would disagree with that. So uh, good. Um, now, Bobby, finally, the island is overrun by the biggest dick of all the animals. Which animal is it and why? Well, it looks like a dick. It glistens like a dick. I haven't tasted one, but I'm sure it tastes like dick as well. Um, the humble British slug. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Good oh, choice. God. So first of all, like these are our, and this is the animal kingdom. We can't yeah. attack them. I was thinking about this. Like I love octopuses. I love jellyfish. I love elephants. I love tigers. I nearly put the hyena in there just because there's something really horrible about a hyena's face. Yeah. Like, and when you've seen these nature documentaries and like you get a, a crowd of hyenas tacking a proud lion and you're like, bitch, you, there's nothing even cool about you hyenas. You basically wait. You, they, they're like debt collection agencies. They prey <laughs> on other people's downfall. So the hyena nearly went in there. And then yeah. I realized, I've never met a hyena. I've not been across the, you know, uh, uh, the wilds of Africa. Maybe they're really cool. Maybe it's just the fact they've got a face that you want to slap uh, that makes them a bit annoying. <laughs> Slugs, on the other hand, right? Think about everything that we go through in Britain. You get a ladybird in the house. All right, fine. What a lovely ladybird. You get a moth in the house. Some people don't like moths. All right, butterflies are beautiful. A fly can come in. A bee is beautiful. A wasp comes in, you fucking little twat of a wasp. Fuck off, I hate you wasp, but it's fine. You walk into your kitchen in the morning, and this is the next thing. How do slugs get in your house? Because every now and again, once every three years, you'll find a slug with a slimy trail across your rug, a slug on a rug, how yeah. do you get into the house? And when you look at a slug, it's got pop marks. There's oh, a section, a section that's got those lines on it. Why are those lines parallel compared to, you know, like, you know what I mean? It doesn't mm. even look real. It looks like a penis a lot of the time. It's purple. <laughs> it's a purple headed mountain of a penis looking animal. It leaves a slimy trail. I, I've never, I've, it doesn't look, I'm sure somewhere there's a gardener going, oh, well, it, if it weren't for slugs, we wouldn't have gardens. I'm sure we wouldn't have gardens. But everything about a slug makes me want to fucking kill it. Yeah, no, I'm 100%. 100%. I think, do you know what? And I'm so grateful you mentioned about slugs getting in the kitchen because this happened to me and I was like, I can't tell you. It's like my dirty secret. Because I was like, look, I clean the house. I don't know what it is. Why is this happening to me? It can't happen to anyone else. And I've been, it's like a secret shame. But I'm so relieved that you've said that. And like, yeah, where do they come from? I don't know what, and what are they for? Like, at least with a snail, there's some kind of, you know, like the, 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 the shell is beautiful. I quite like the way that they can just sort of retract back inside and be all compact and then pop out again. They're, they're two antlers, they're two little eyes. Yeah, it's quite cute, around. isn't it? But like a slug is just, it's like all the bad bits and there's just no beauty and it's just... Yeah, what the fuck are they for? Just, I don't think we'd miss them. You know, I think maybe they help decompose things, but I'm sure that things would just rot away without them. I don't think we need them that much. And do you know what I mean about, I mean, forget the, the stuff from when you're young. You don't know what you're looking at, but there is some kind of aversion when you're a kid because it does look like a penis. Mm. All right. Saying that when the first time I saw a penis uh, in terms of <laughs> on a graphic level when I was a teenager and I went, oh, it looks like a slug, but there's, it's that shape. <laughs> and it's the way it moves. And, and, and I mentioned those parallel lines because often you'll get slugs where 
there's sections of its body that don't look like other sections of its body. So it's still a whole slug, but then they'll have a bit where there's just lines there. And you're like, is that the front of the slug? Is that the back of the slug? Where's the eyes? Where's, you know, like it's, there's just something really weird about them and the slime and, you know, the sneaking into people's houses and fucking us up. And uh, uh, yeah, you know, like uh, I hate slugs. And mm. that's, here's the last thing, all right? <laughs> when you think about the Chinese eating dogs, and of course, not all Chinese eat dogs. When you think about people eating dogs, and you know, when people go, well, you know, can you believe it? Someone eats a horse, and then someone goes, well, some people in France do eat horses. You get into this mental kind of, you know, debate in your head that, well, even food's objective, because if you go to the Far East, they'll eat insects, and now they've got all these debates about how insects are good sources of protein. Mm. So you, you can't eat these things, but you get that certain nations have food yeses and nos. Yeah. That food is objective. So you will go, fine, I would never eat a horse, but it, it's obviously not wrong to eat a horse mm. unless you shouldn't eat any animals because the French can eat a horse, all right? Yeah. I'll give you an example. In my culture, my mum used to make brains. Uh, like mm -hmm. I, think, I think they were goat's brains when I was young. It's just yeah. a Punjabi dish. So I know people who would vomit before they ate brains, but I've eaten brains. And I then look at the Chinese and would never eat a dog. And I'm not supporting dog eating. I'm just saying, psychologically, you can kind of account for why people eat certain things. Mm. And so in your head, you can go, I'll never eat an insect, but I get why they eat insects. I'm telling you now, there ain't no culture on this earth that eats slugs, all right? Yeah. If that culture eats slugs, get rid of that culture. Yeah, exactly. They just there's nothing good about them at all. And yeah, I th I think you know what Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, who tries to eat everything he sees. I saw a program with him once, and he was like, "Oh, slugs are taking over my garden. I wonder if I can eat them." And even he, I've seen him eat, you know, squirrels and and all kinds of stuff. Even he was just like, "No, it can't be done. I've tried it. It's disgusting. It's not worth it." Wow. Well, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Fuck slugs, man. <laughs> Well, Bobby, do you know what? I think you've put together an amazingly uh, a diverse and yet uh, reasoned uh, bunch of things and people for the island, and uh, you've made brilliant arguments for each. So thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you so much for uh, breaking my hippie bubble that I'd carefully constructed around <laughs> myself and making me realise that I have vast rivers of hate running within this, this continent I call my body. Thank you. Well, you know what, now that now that you've kind of released them like a safety valve, maybe you've sort of purged what you need to and you can go back to a harmonious lifestyle. Yeah. Bye bye, <laughs> thank you. Now, uh, Bobby, obviously people can catch you on your radio show on the um, Asian Network. Um, where else is a good place to sort of keep up to date with what you're up to? Um, most definitely uh, BBC Asian Network, Monday to Thursday, basically three hours. People think it's just uh, a Bollywood show and that's what Asian music is. There's dubstep, there's drum and bass, there's experimental electronica, all of it coming out of South Asia. So that happens uh, four nights a week on the BBC Asian Network. And then I'm always popping up on people's podcasts i'm always writing about asian music in various publications and you might even see me on tv every now and again and if you do want to go and check out this history of british asian bhangra music it's available on youtube right now made for bbc4 uh, an hour-long documentary which also tells the social and musical history of british asians in the 70s 80s and 90s so Check it out if you can. Yeah, I was watching that the other day, actually, and it is brilliant. So I definitely recommend people go and check that out. Bobby, thank you again for spending time with us today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, bro. Thank you Cheers. today. Bye.